0: reading from Mark chapter 2 tonight. So if you want to grab your uh, device or your Bible, uh, it'll also be on the screen behind me. And we're starting verse 23 of chapter 2 and continuing on into chapter 3. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiatha the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone
1: Well, hey there, night Church. Uh, my name is Stu. In case you don't know me, it is fantastic to be uh, doing church with you tonight on this kind of miserable, cold, rainy eve. Uh, but we're pulling through. It's great that you're here. Uh, and with all the kind of has gone on over the last year and a bit, uh, I haven't been able to get up here in the flesh uh, and, and preach. So I'm super pumped to be here. I'm kind of a little out of practice with the grown-up kids. Uh, I've been doing it with... Uh, Young people around, so, you know, you're a little bit scary, but it's okay. We'll get through. Uh, So I thought it might be a good time for you to be able to get to know me a bit more as well. So I'll let you in on kind of the the thing that's going on in my life at the moment. Uh, I'm married to the lovely Andy, and our family is about to grow by one, as you can see up there. Uh, We're expecting a baby pretty much any time now, just around the corner. Uh, And Andy's been pregnant for what? six years or so it It feels about that long and it's been a brutal pregnancy it's been tough for her too uh it's you know the, the sleepless nights the aches the pains we're getting kind of ready to bring in this new member of the family and this really weird thing keeps happening I keep on having the exact same conversation with everyone I talk to about having a kid if they've already had a kid I'll fill, you, fill it out a bit more. It kind of goes like this: it goes starts with me. Oh yeah, we're having a baby soon. Super excited. It's going to be great. Amazing. I've wanted to be dad for ages. It's finally happening. I'm keen. And they go, oh, congratulations. Get ready to say goodbye to a full night's sleep forevermore, and to always be tired. It's this weird little thing where they're letting me know that their spawn is the worst mistake of their life, perhaps, and they regret it, and but. Put that aside, the thing I think that those people don't get is that I'm already tired. And I, I know if you've had kids, you're sitting there going, you, know, you, you don't know tired, but I'm telling you, I know tired. I not because I, you know, I just work all the time, not because I've got a, a, a kid keeping me up through the night, but because there's a deep part of me that just doesn't want to stop working. I'm not talking about my job or uh, working around the house. I'm talking about the work beneath the work. This hidden inner desire I have to prove my stuff, the stuff that operates beneath the surface that no one sees, that toil of self-doubt, self-justification that bubbles away under the surface there, the work beneath my work. You see, I've spent so much of my life doing this work trying to prove myself, trying to prove myself to myself, that I'm a good guy, that even when I'm not good, I'm getting better and that, you know, I've got enough in me to get through life and live up to my own standards. I'm trying to prove myself to others, that that I can live up to the expectations of everyone and not disappoint anyone and kind of make sure I'm worthy of being able to be employed by a church and get paid by the money that you give each week, that I'm a confident, capable guy who's okay in that spot and trying to prove myself to God. That I'm getting better at controlling my desires or avoiding those particular sins. That I know enough of the Bible and keep enough of a good reputation with those people around me that I know I just, I think I'm going to be okay. And I wonder if you've got this deep desire, this part inside you, driving you to work as well. Not uni work, not your job, the work beneath the work. Because for almost all of us, we're constantly at work to try to prove ourselves. Trying to prove yourself to yourself that deep down you're good, and even if you're not there, you're getting there. Proving yourself to others that you're worthy of the relationships that you're a part of, that you bring something to the table in them, that you're aware of your privileges and that you use them well. Or trying to prove yourself to God. Proving that you're on a good path. Maybe you've changed enough or now you pray enough or you read the Bible enough that saving you and making you a Christian has all been worth it in the end. If you're anything like me, you might be sitting there and days like this don't help just feeling tired. Tired of all the effort of living up to these expectations placed on you from within and without. Perhaps so tired that you're not sure you'll last another week without kind of losing it. And all you really need is just a rest. A time away from those people, those expectations. Well, in today's passage, in our story that changes everything, we're confronted with Jesus' attitude towards the Sabbath and what real rest looks like. We kind of have two little stories uh, that are bunched together here. And in the face of trying to prove ourselves, we will see... The futility of religion and the finality of Christ. So first, the futility of religion. Uh, In these two little stories that Bell read out for us today, uh, they center around the Sabbath. Our passages come at kind of the end of this long string of controversies in Mark's gospel where Jesus and the Pharisees have been battling against each other. There's been all sorts of things popped up. Uh, there's uh, Jesus has already touched lepers he's forgiven sins he's eaten with sinners and last week we skipped over a couple of verses about Jesus not fasting the whole time Jesus upends expectations and shows that his gospel of good news is superseding the laws and traditions of the Pharisees religion and here we are now the last little chunk of these controversies around the Sabbath. Now, if you're not sure what the Sabbath is, it's the Jewish holy day. It's set aside once a week, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. No works to be done on the Sabbath. The word itself means deep rest. Time for recovery. Time for worship. It was one of the main things that marked out the Jewish people from the, the nations around them. Their weekly day off. And it's not just that they wanted a, a weekend to break up their seven-day work week. They were living out what God had, had baked into creation, himself as he rested on the seventh day. And also the the command to remember the Sabbath, it's the longest one in the Ten Commandments. It's a big deal for these guys. It was a day where the rich, the poor, the slaves, the animals, and even the plants of Israel just take a break from their work and have a day dedicated to God. And it kind of just makes sense. Right, it's good resource management. You need to rest well if you're going to work well. But at the centre of all of this was the idea that an Israelite's worth was not found in what they do, but who they are. You see, the laws of Moses and the creation story itself—they were written to God's people, the Israelites, with slavery in Egypt still fresh in the back of their minds. They've just come out. And under Egyptian slavery, what what was the main thing they did? What was what gave them value? They were slaves. They made bricks. The more bricks you make, the more you're worth. And how many days do slaves get off? None. Because then you don't make any bricks and you're worthless. With this Sabbath day off each week, the Israelites are reminded they aren't worthy because of how many bricks they make. They're worthy because God says they are. And so, our first story opens in verse 23. Uh, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. This delightful little image of Jesus and his snacky companions out on the road, taking a stroll and looking for a free feed. But it's not delightful for everyone. You see, the Pharisees, they're watching this unfold, and they're upset about what's happening. They're upset about what the disciples are doing. Because as we heard last week, the Pharisees were so concerned with keeping all of God's laws that they followed extra rules written down by previous teachers as kind of like a buffer to make sure that they didn't touch on God's laws and didn't accidentally break one. And they were so fixated on details around the Sabbath that they wrote down and passed on hundreds of different rules about how to keep the Sabbath well to make sure they didn't break God's laws. For example, they pulled together a list of 39 different types of work that you couldn't do on the Sabbath, just so you didn't accidentally trip up and do something that was worky. They wanted the details. So things like they weren't allowed to plow or hunt or reap. Those kind of make sense. But they wanted the details. And so they wrote down laws. This is actual Jewish law in the Mishnah, where they could write one letter, but not two. One was fine, two was work. Or they could sew one stitch. It's about as good as I am at sewing, but not two. Two was work. And all those rules just kind of sound like a lot of work to me, keeping up with all that's going on there. And they're complaining to Jesus, and Jesus could have responded to their complaint by saying that technically, he and all his disciples were breaking any of God's laws. Because his disciples were picking wheat that was allowed in Deuteronomy. Uh, They were only breaking the rules that the Pharisees had put in place as kind of that buffer. But instead of doing that, he tells them this strange story from the Old Testament. This strange story about David and his companions eating consecrated bread that was only for the priests. Bit of a strange move. But in referring to this story, Jesus doesn't condemn David's actions, even though it seems like he's broken a rule. Why? It's not because the laws that God put in place aren't important, or that observing the Sabbath wasn't important for Jesus and the disciples. Rather, Jesus is saying there are certain situations where the technical breaches are warranted. Simply put, he's saying that the disciples needed to eat more than they needed to not work on the Sabbath. Let's take a pause for a second. Does that mean that when the situation seems to call for it, we can just kind of break one of God's rules because it makes sense? Well, no. Jesus is saying that the Pharisees, to the Pharisees, the rules had actually become an obstacle to the point of the rule itself. The Sabbath rule was there for rest, but they were so worked up over the rules around rest that they weren't resting. Their own religious efforts towards resting were futile. They missed the point. Kind of like doors like this. They're meant for an emergency. But if you stick to the letter of the law on that door, that door is useless. There's a fire going on. You need to get out as quick as possible. But then the Pharisees at the door are saying, no, 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 do not open. You're not meant to open that door. They've missed the point completely. Similarly, at the start of chapter three, Jesus is in a synagogue and the Pharisees are there waiting for him to work by healing someone on the Sabbath so they could accuse him and get rid of him. And there's this man with a shriveled hand there who needs help. Everyone's watching, just waiting for someone to act. And all the Pharisees care about is getting rid of Jesus. You could say their hearts are shriveled like the man's hands. Jesus gets the man up in front of the crowd and asks him, Oops, I've already got there. I blew the surprise from the meme. Anyway. Jesus gets up and asks him, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do evil or to do good? To save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. The answer here is obviously to do good, right? Good is the point of the Sabbath. Of course, God didn't make the Sabbath to do evil, God's laws were for the good of His people, God's commands that they don't remove the ability to do good on the Sabbath. That would be just missing the point. But no one answers. because their fixation on religious stipulations makes them miss the point completely. And Jesus looks around and he's upset, understandably so, and it makes sense. They've missed the point of God's laws in the Sabbath. In fact, they're so concerned that they're, they care more about plotting against Jesus than resting themselves. Their own laws tell them to rest, but here they are plotting a man's death. They're breaking their own rules. In fact, they're so far away from the restful purposes of God's law that they're teaming up with the Herodians to get rid of Jesus there in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. And this is a huge deal because the Herodians, they were like the supporters of the Roman government who'd come in and were trying to squash out all the Jewishness of Israel. And people like the the Pharisees, they were upset by this, they were offended by this. And they didn't want those people there. They were on opposite ends of the political spectrum. We've got the traditional Pharisees and the kind of forward-moving Herodians. Usually would not talk to each other, usually distinct enemies now teaming up to work together through the rest of Mark's gospel to kill Jesus. Perhaps the closest thing I can think of uh, is when two mortal enemies, iPhone users and Android users, usually never crossing circles, usually hating each other all the time, team up to take out Windows phone users. Do you remember that thing? Man, it was bad. And it worked. They got rid of him all. Pharisees are so desperate to get rid of Jesus. They team up with the Herodians who also want him gone. And in his actions here in this passage, Jesus brings to the surface kind of two models, two paradigms uh, of spiritual reaction to the law. The first is religion. In religion, the law assures you that you're okay with God. You work very hard to do all the things and assure yourself you're a good person and God owes you because of that. And as a result, when you come to the law, the thing that you're most concerned with, like the Pharisees, is detail. You need to know exactly what to do, when to do it. While it's pretty easy to kind of sit here and wag our fingers at the Pharisees, this is exactly our religious response so many times when we come up against God's laws. It looks like questions like, how much can I get away with? How far is too far before I cross that line into sin? Exactly how much money as a percentage do I need to give to the poor? Exactly, who is my neighbor that I need to love? How many houses next to mine count? Give me detail on exactly what this means for me. That's the religious approach to these laws. And when you keep them, you can look around at everyone and say, huh, I'm better than you. But the second reaction is through the gospel lens. In the gospel, the law has a different function. It's there to, to take you out of yourself. It shows you the type of life that you want to live now. It sketches out a particular kind of life. So when you look at the broad purposes of God's law, you see them rather than the detail. When you look at it, you're humbled. Because in fact, you know that you're not better than anyone else. In fact, the, the only way to see through the gospel lens is to admit that you are worse than anyone else. You're humbled because you know God loves you despite your inability to keep his laws. And so you yearn to live for him. This is human religion versus the gospel of Christ. And most people in the world believe that if there is a God, you relate to him by being good. If you perform, you're accepted. Now Christianity is not only different to this, it is absolutely opposed to this. The gospel says, I'm fully accepted in Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. By contrast, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And religion leads to pride, spiritual deadness, thin skin when people accuse, anxiety, worry, and tiredness does little to rest us from our physical work and nothing to rest us from our work beneath the work. In the end, it's ultimately futile. We cannot prove ourselves to God through our religious rule keeping. So the question that we're left with is how does Jesus supersede this religion with his gospel yet still uphold God's laws uh, which he has given? What do we do now as Christians? How do we live with all of these instructions here but through the gospel lens? How is this part of the story that changes everything? Well, first off, we need to note that Jesus, he doesn't do away with the Sabbath. He doesn't say, you don't need to follow this rule anymore. In fact, he actually affirms its importance when he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not just... Jewish people, it's not just Christians it's humankind that needs to, sab- needs to Sabbath, needs to look after themselves, you have to take time off work, it's baked into creation, it's part of who you are and how you've been made to function he's affirming this principle of the Sabbath, the stuff that the Pharisees missed in all their efforts for the detail now you might be sitting here just feeling tired and it might be because you just need to hear you need to take a day off You have to rest. That's just part of how you've been made, part of how our world works, part of what God has made you to do. And yet Jesus over and over again, he comes and squashes the legalistic and, and religious ritual around the Sabbath. He's upset in this passage about the way that God's laws have been treated, using them to try and gain God's affection. And he comes in and says, no, no, we're not doing this anymore. Who do you think he is? To come in and upend thousands of years of Jewish tradition like this. What does he get off saying something as explosive as this? Well, the answer's there in verse 28. Where he says, the son of man, that's, that's what he calls himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And can, can you see how outrageous this is? It would have been a scandal if he came in and said, no, I'm going to change the way the Sabbath works. Or if he came and said, no, no, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. I'll tell you what to do about that. But no, no, he doesn't say that. He goes even further. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. This deep rest, this deep peace. He says, I am the Lord of rest. I am the source of the deep rest you need. I am the Sabbath. The reason I can fulfill your deep need for rest is because I am the Sabbath. The one day a week rest you get, that's just an image of the deep rest that you will get in me. That's why in Matthew 11:28, 28, Jesus can say to those around him, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. When he says that he's Lord of the Sabbath, he, he's building on these remarkable claims he keeps making throughout Mark's gospel. In fact, in saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he's claiming... He's claiming that he was there, uncreated in the beginning. He's claiming that he was the one who spoke creation into existence. He's claiming that he is the eternal, all-powerful God who, who made the world and then rested on the seventh day. He's claiming that he invented the Sabbath. That's what he's saying here. It's huge. It's monstrous. It's explosive what he claims about himself. What do we do with this claim, this claim of Jesus? How do we follow him, this Lord of the Sabbath? Well, there's lots we could say about following uh, Jesus as our Lord and his affirmation of the Sabbath here, how to put kind of markers around your work life to ensure that you're resting well. Uh, But we did that last year. Uh, If you weren't around or you missed it, we looked and we had a series about godly habits and Nathan unpacked what it means to rest well, what it might look like to Sabbath well and so please go if you missed that go home and jump on our youtube channel it is still there in hd quality ready for you to watch along but tonight we're focusing a bit more on what this passage tells us about jesus about how that changes everything so let me just quickly say this when the bible talks about rest there's kind of two different levels on the first there's time off physical, mental breaks from the the toil that we do each week. It's important to have a weekend and a rest so your body functions well and to set aside time to spend with God's people. But there's another level of rest. Another level that Jesus calls us to here, a deeper rest from the work that's beneath the work. Because in Genesis chapter one, when when God made the world and then rested, what does that mean? that he was tired. No, God doesn't get tired. He rested because he was satisfied with his work. He was able to step back and enjoy what he had made. It is good, he said. It's very good. You see, there's a work underneath our work that we really need rest from. Without God in our lives, there's a work going on to convince ourselves and those around us and God himself that we're good people That work is never done unless we rest in the gospel. Because you see, in creation, at the end of creation, God says it's finished so he could rest. But on the cross, at the end of redemption, Jesus said it is finished so that we could rest. Because the work underneath the work to prove that we're good enough is completed. He completes it. He's lived the life that we could not live, and died the death that we were meant to die, so that we could stop working. It's like the that deep R E M rest, you know, the rapid eye movement rest that you need, unless uh, because if you don't get it, you're going to wake up still feeling tired. It's like the R E M rest of the soul. You could take all the Sundays off and take all the holidays in the world, but if you don't have this deep rest from the gospel. You will always be tired. Here Jesus offers you an end, a finality to that work. Uh, Andy's grandfather, his name was Peter, he passed away a couple of years ago and sadly I, I never got the chance to meet him. I've heard lots of great things about him. He moved to Australia from Lebanon. He set up out in the country. He opened up a shop. He worked hard. You know, like immigrant hard work flavor to support his family. And he knew the meaning of tired. And at the end of his life, he, he battled long and hard with dementia. And I tell you, he knew tired. But a couple of months before he died, he was asked what the most important thing is. You see, we don't rest in religion. We don't rest in our efforts. We don't rest in how well we look after people around us or how much of a shiny reputation we can uphold. We rest in Jesus. Because ultimately, we will, we will never be satisfied working to prove ourselves. We will never be able to reach the end of the work beneath the work. Because each one of us, you and I, were tainted with sin. Our rest will only come when we meet Jesus Christ as Lord and hear his gospel message that we are saved through nothing we do, but through his grace alone. We are accepted, therefore we obey. And only there can we find rest from the work beneath the work, as we're welcomed into the arms of our God, the living God, the only God, Jesus Christ, our Sabbath. In Psalm 116, verse 7 sums it up nicely. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Why don't you pray with me? Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that you bring us the gospel through your Son. We praise you that it's not about the work that we can do and the things that we can bring and the rules that we can keep. We thank you that it's because of Jesus' great grace and his willingness to take our place and complete that work that we can be called your children and be saved. God, protect us from the work beneath the work. Protect us from trying to to earn our reputation amongst ourselves or amongst others and with you help us to be humble. Help us to admit that we need your grace. And Lord, may we rest well in you. Amen.